Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the, the Al Franken podcast. We have uh, Andy Slavitt again, our first return guest. And he's going to be talking about the... Democratic candidates, uh, health care plans, and really how both he and I think that we should do a little bit more to emphasize uh, Trump's horrible record on health care. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, we recorded this on on Sunday before the, uh, the shootings in El, El Paso and Dayton. And... Um, We've all seen a lot of these. I was in the Senate after Sandy Hook, and I remember those uh, votes going down. That we did not. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought these are twenty-five-year-old kids. How? And I just. I remember coming to the floor. I had signed on to the assault weapons ban right away, and uh, ran into Ted Cruz. And Cruz said to me, anybody for the assault weapons ban is engaged in sophistry. Now, sophistry is kind of an SAT word, I guess, but it's also a lawyer word, and it means like a phony kind of debate. So I guess it's a debate. So it's an argument that's meant to mislead people, dishonest argument. So I said, uh, how am I engaged in sophistry? And he said, well, the Clinton administration's own Justice Department put out a report in 1996, two years after the assault weapons ban of 94 was passed, and said it didn't work. And I said, no, it didn't. Actually, it said reduced murders with assault weapons by about 6%, but there wasn't enough data to say that that was significant. So they, they, they said, they didn't say it didn't work, they said they can't conclude from this less than two year study that it does work. And he said, you just read the report. And I said, well I have, but I, I'll do it again. So I go back to my office, take the subway back to my office. First staffer I find is uh, Josh Riley, my judiciary uh, staffer. He went to Harvard Law. I said to him, Ted Cruz just said that anybody for the assault weapons ban is engaged in sophistry. Josh says, what's sophistry? So I tell him, and then he goes, what? No. What, why did he say that? Um, and then I said, well, he, he said Clinton's own Justice Department, blah, blah, blah. 
And he goes, no, 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 no. The, in the report, and then he repeats exactly what I said. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. Just go to the report, get the language, put it in a memo. I'll carry it, carry it with me, and next time I see Cruz, I'll, I'll show it to him. I go, okay. So Josh does that. A day or two later, I'm on the floor. I see Cruz, and I said, well, I guess you owe me an apology. And he says, why? And I said, well, you told me that anyone who is for the assault weapons ban is engaged in sophistry. And he said, no, I didn't. You know, there, there's such a thing as kind of a bad guy. And unfortunately... A lot of bad guys are sitting around doing nothing, refusing to do something about assault weapons, about background checks, while these insane people uh, kill, kill people way, way, way too often. Um, Okay, again, we have Andy Slavitz. Andy was the um, administrator during the last part of the Obama administration for Medicare and Medicaid. And um, he, he was on one of our, our first shows and, and we really did a whole thing on the sort of the whole span of the history of ACA. Today we're doing something much narrower, which is we're going to be talking about in, in the debates, the Democratic debates, there's been a lot of discussion about insurance, about uh, private insurance. Uh, there's, there's, every Democrat wants to uh, get to universal health care. Uh, some want to go to single payer. And there's been this argument focused on whether or not to allow private insurance uh, in single payer. And... Uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this discussion. Hey, everybody. Uh, we, we have our first repeat guest on the Al Franken podcast. Does that mean I failed the first time? No, it means people just fucking loved you. <laughs> that's what it means. Well, that's great, but thank you. That's nice. And you're back because we've been through a couple rounds of these Democratic debates. And uh, sort of in the last round, healthcare took up a lot of, of the debate. And it got sort of contentious um, a number of times on whether to have single payer with no uh, private insurance or single payer with the ability to get some private insurance. And uh, every other country, every other developed country in the world does have some form of universal care, right? Correct. There are various forms of that. And Bernie Sanders will point in both the debates he's been in, he says, I live in Vermont and just to my north is a country called Canada and in Canada they have single payer and Canadians pay half of what we pay for prescription drugs. 
and they have single payer, right? And then he was in Detroit, and he was five miles from here. There is a country called Canada, and they have single payer, and they cover everybody, and they get insulin for one-tenth of what we pay here in the United States. They do have private health care insurance. It's usually paid for by the employer. I've read anywhere from about two-thirds to three-quarters of Canadians use some kind of supplemental. That doesn't mean a, a country couldn't have single payer and no private insurance. Uh, but no one's done it yet. I mean, Great Britain is socialized medicine, but you can get private supplemental uh, insurance. I am not taking the position here. I'm not, I, I want to kind of stay out of this. I want to stay out of who, who should be our nominee. And here's why. I'll vote for any of them. Right. Because the other guy is Donald Trump, and he is scary. So I realize that every one of our candidates wants to win. They wouldn't have gotten in unless they want to win, unless they believed that they would make the best president of the United States, not just in the field, but in the country, right? Right. These are people with confidence, I'd say. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make them malignant narcissists. And they're also Democrats. And they also all want universal Right. Now, we we talked before, and we both agree that Democrats win on health care. That was the case in 2018. We picked up 40 House seats. The number one issue in exit polls by far was health care. It actually was higher than the next two combined. That's right. And if anything... And it's gotten worse on their side because Trump has signed on to the, his Justice Department to this lawsuit that's going to go to the Supreme Court. If the lawsuit succeeds in the Supreme Court, poof, there goes the ACA completely. Therefore, I think you and I had the, the same reaction to the debate, which is, okay, I know this is incredibly important. And precisely what our plan is, is very important, but... But is it really? I think every Democrat knows that if any one of these candidates on the Democratic side wins, that they would sign any bill that any one of the other candidates would be able to pass through uh, the House and the Senate, even, say, if we we got the Senate back, Mm -hmm. which is not at all assured at all. And we're not going to get rid of the filibuster, I don't think, if we have 51. So Andy Slavitt was, uh, I I give him two distinctions. One, saved the healthcare.gov website, the one that uh, crashed and saved the Obama presidency. Yeah. That could be argued. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and look, it it not for nothing. Um, people like yourself who had invested a lot in getting this to where it was uh, to be able to say at the end of the first year that at that point. Seven million people had signed up for insurance on the exchange. By the more, when, when you got it fixed, when we got it fixed, <laughs> right, was was a really important thing to be able to do. Otherwise, I think people who already have reason to have not a lot of faith in government uh, would have had even less. And so it was good at, that we were able to make at least good on what you guys had started. We we talked a lot about that uh, last time you're on. Then we talked about just really the whole arc of the ACA, and then what's next. So we had a really broad conversation. Today we're going to have a narrower conversation, which is to to basically look at what's being debated now and what the different plans are of the candidates, Democratic candidates who have plans, what Trump's plan, I guess, is. He will be introducing a plan? Supposedly in September. Supposedly oh, that's right. You, yeah. do, you can't necessarily count on him to do everything he does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's right. So, uh, you know, contrast what he has been doing and saying with our our plans, which is what you and I both think we should be doing yes. in yes. these debates. Yeah. I think you've got it right, which is not that the distinctions on how to cover every American aren't important. They are, and and in some part, primaries are about drawing out those distinctions. But, you know, I worry that, that they are off course and have lost the plot a little bit when in, I think, four debates, they don't mention once that the president currently is in cahoots with 18 state Republican attorney general to essentially get rid of the entire ACA, all of pre-existing condition protections, the requirement that prescription drugs are covered, the ability for millions and millions of Americans to afford health care. The subsidy, the, the whole subsidy, structure of Medicaid the whole expansion. Thing. And you would think that that was worth pointing out. <laughs> and, yes. And even as, and, and look, I think there, we, we, what we should step back and understand is that what they're into an argument is about not what do we all believe? Because as you said, they all believe that everybody in the country should be able to afford to take care of their family when they're sick, bar none, every one of them. What they're arguing about is how. So the conversation about how is one that is a little bit interesting and certainly important directionally. But as you said earlier, the reality is the question we need to understand is, will they push for and sign legislation that will indeed help every American take care of their families when they get sick? And if the answer is yes, and I think it's universally yes. Um, possibly Sanders might might only sign something that looks more like what, what he's put forward based on some of the things he said. I, but I, in the main... I think the Sanders supporters are saying that any kind of for-profit or private, even if it isn't for-profit, uh, which is right. in Minnesota is almost only not-for-profit, that they put fat into right. Right. the system and we pay more because of that. Now, I think one thing that Bernie would say is that my plan covers everything. Everything. Yeah. So, um, you know, part of the uh, supplemental private insurance in Canada is for glasses or for vision, for dental. Hearing aids, maybe. Hearing aids, right? So everything will be covered. But here's the one thing I noticed. 
it doesn't cover facelifts. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing I don't understand is who covers people for plastic surgery anyway? I guess there is a market there, but I mean, if a 50-year-old guy comes in and he's looking a little jowly, <laughs> he says, I'd like some plastic surgery insurance. Why would you give <laughs> plastic surgery insurance? This is just something I, I I think about. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a darn good question. I mean, because there really is I there really is no such thing as jowl insurance. I don't think. Yeah, like McConnell would have the jawline <laughs> of a college freshman he, if he there could, were. He couldn't get covered for that. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're settling for your foundation? That is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Here's a, another thing. When I see plastic surgery where you go like, man, that man, that woman has had work done. Mm-hmm. I thought of a practice for a plastic surgeon called the minimalist. Okay, and what he does is uh, he uh, puts the the patient under and um, does nothing, absolutely nothing. After a while, wraps the person's face in, in some kind of gauze and tape with slits for the eyes. And uh, then they go into uh, a spa for like uh, two, three weeks of, of recovery. And at the spa, they uh, get massages and uh, great diet, just a really, really healthy diet, some exercise, lots and lots of rest, and just fun activities. And then after the two or three weeks, he unwraps uh, the gauze, and uh, she looks great, or he looks great. Because you would, right? He's like the the minimalist. I can't see the work. I, I, that's amazing. You can barely tell anything was done. Yeah. So that's my next scam. The point is, is that uh, the Bernie plan would would replace any need for supplemental private insurance because. The plan itself, his plan itself, would cover everything except faceless. I'd only suggest that, as a practical matter, save some oxygen for the fact that we're arguing over how one person thinks that, that sky blue is better than powder blue and one person thinks that royal blue is better than powder blue when the other side is dark, dark, dark gray. And... We have to make sure we save enough oxygen to say, hey, wait a minute, while we are 
talking about things, let's recognize these are distinctions. We talked earlier about if this were in a conversation about global warming, this would be the equivalent of having a knockdown drag out, hour-long fight, obsessing and taking over about around. whether natural gas is a proper transition. Right. Fuel. Right. Everybody on the stage would resign the Paris Accords. Now, some of them are in favor of the Green New Deal. Some of them may like parts of the Green New Deal and otherwise. But our choice isn't going to be between those distinctions. Our choice is going to be between Trump's environmental policy and theirs. And so we need to get a little bit back to the general election mindset and uh, recognizing you, you know, you've been in these situations, you've got to fight the primary. And, and, and maybe you would say, and I'd be curious what your thoughts are, can you fight a primary and still keep and hope to win and still keep people focused on the contrast in the general election? Yeah, I think you can do that. You've just got to keep the balance a little bit more toward the differences between the Democrats and Trump rather than the differences between how to get to universal or how to do single payer. The prime distinction, and let's, let's maybe take, take half a step back definitionally, because people did leave those debates confused. So what, what, are, the, what are the candidates agree on? What That's what I wanted you to tell us. So they, every candidate that, that, that um, this is both from what they've said as well as some, some of the primary knowledge we have, uh, believes that everybody should have available to them a plan offered by the government that they should have available to them no matter what. Uh, what they disagree on is whether or not if they have something through the private sector, whether it's something like Medicare Advantage or it's something through their employer uh, or it's something that takes care of a special need that they have because maybe they have a disabled child or something, um, whether or not they should still be able to keep that plan. It says nothing about whether that option will be available. And as you pointed out earlier, most of the other countries in the world um, provide you some role for the public and private sector because of the fact that they do uh, depend upon one another and mesh together. Now, when Bernie is saying, and I think he's the principal person saying, we should really not have a role for the public sector, for the private, private sector, yeah. he's tapping into something real, which is the, the anger, the, 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 right, the rightful anger at people who have been putting profits over really caring for people in this country for too long. You know, the um, pharmaceutical sector makes $69 billion in profits last year, uh, and they charge 10 times for insulin, or close to 10 times for insulin, what, what's charged in other countries. And just in general, last time you were here, you say Europe pays about 30 to 40% yeah. of what we do right. for pharmaceuticals. Right. So a good example. It costs about $15 to produce a vial of insulin, if you're being generous about it, actually. You could produce and this cheaper. is something that's been around for how long has insulin been around? Insulin's been around forever. And in 1996, that $15 uh, vial of insulin sold for about $15, cost a little bit less to make it than in the U.S. Today, that $15 bottle of insulin, if you were to take inflation and just grow inflation approximately, you'd get to $39. And $39 is what you can buy insulin for in Canada. That same exact vial of insulin from the same factory in the U.S. costs $240. And that is causing people to ration their own insulin, and there's been deaths. Mm -hmm. And the pharmaceutical industry spends about $400 million a year just from one lobby to prevent any progress in bringing the cost of drugs down. There is a lot of anger, appropriately, 
for the fact that our system caters to the private sector at the expense of real people. I think that Sanders and Sanders supporters are calling more attention to this and better than anybody has in the past. What they're asking for is something that really reshapes uh, how that works. Now, he is using the brand for this as Medicare for all. Other people, and this is where it starts to get confusing, are also saying their plan has Medicare for all. So maybe I'll take a step back a second and say, well, what is Medicare? So Medicare is a program passed in 1965, and it covers two groups of people, people over 65 and people living with disabilities. It has a very antiquated benefit that's called Part A and Part B and Part D that covers hospital stays and it covers doctor visits and it covers some drugs if you buy the Part D. What Bernie Sanders is offering really doesn't look a lot like that. For one, it doesn't have a Part A, Part B, and Part D structure. It creates a different set of benefits that look more like the ACA. Secondly, Medicare uses something called the Medicare Trust Fund, which is a bunch of money that's been reserved to pay for Medicare claims. He's not talking about tapping into that uh, necessarily. And this comes from just income tax revenue. It, it comes from payroll tax. Um, okay. Medicare so, Trust Fund. Yep. Oh, okay. A yeah. specific uh, line item on your payroll tax. Well, that's what it does now. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what his sorry. would yes. it would come out of the general fund right. of yep. yeah, our right. treasury. Yep. That's right. So, uh, and he's talking about raising taxes on the wealthy and, and a couple of other things to, to, to try to compensate. So, what he's describing. But he's also said that there'll be a tax increase for middle class, but their health care will be free. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, right. um, I don't see where. Like Elizabeth Warren was asked a few times in that debate, will middle-class people be paying more on their taxes? And she said, they'll be less out of pocket for them. Right. I'd like to see the math on that. Right. Uh, for some people, there might right. be less out of pocket uh, at, at the same income thing. So let's say there's somebody who just doesn't, is young and doesn't get sick. And, right. You know. but, and, and that's fine. I'm trying to make a very simple point which is oh, Medicare for all. No, no, uh, you're helping me make it. And maybe I haven't made it well, but my point is that Medicare for all um, isn't like the current Medicare program. Really the only thing about it that, re- that references Medicare is it pays a network. It would pay in a very similar way to Medicare. But it is, it is, Medicare is a, is a word choice. It's a brand choice that Sanders and others have chosen to use but it's not the Medicare program. The reason that is, in my opinion, is because Medicare is an extremely popular program. It has about 88% popularity. What it means to people is a guarantee that when you're 65, you're right. guaranteed to be covered. Right. But, it, but the Medicare program today it's, is about two-thirds public sector, one-third private sector. So it, when it implies to people that it only comes from the government uh, that's actually not how Medicare works today. And so when other people say, as you heard Senator Harris in the debate say that she's in favor of Medicare for all, but she would include an option for that to be provided by the private sector or the public sector, depending on people's choices. And, and she has changed her stance a little bit on that from the beginning of the campaign. I think the word would be clarified. Yes. yes okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, think she, I think she has said she's for Medicare for all. And I think to be fair to her, she has said, um, this is what I mean by it. 
I think she was a little bit. Um, well, she was asked, to, uh, yeah, should we eliminate right. all private insurance? And she raised her hand. Right? And she said, yes, no. Right. She said, yes. And then the next day she said, mm, no. Um, That's what I consider changing your sure. stance. By that but definition, yes. By course. that definition. Right. And, and I, look, I think these are complicated issues and complicated questions. But the, the, the more, most important point is... But you could so anticipate they'd be asked. Sure. But they're <laughs> so... These are distinctions that are meaningful. However, for most Americans, what do they want? They want it to work. That means that if someone in their family gets sick, they want to be able to afford to take care of them. And they don't really necessarily care how it works as much as that it works. They just don't want anybody, whether it's the president of the United States, the Congress, their insurance company's fine print, to be able to take something away from them at a moment of need. What I would say is all of the Democratic candidates want that. There are distinctions that matter, and that could certainly cause you to want to say, I like candidate A better than candidate B in this position. However, those distinctions are so fine, in my opinion, relative to where, where Trump is, that we, this is where we are losing the plot. And I think we'd be wiser to say we all want the same thing. We are arguing over how to get there, not to take anything away from those distinctions. But by God, this is a position that in the main is going to be determined by the Congress, how we get there. I, I, I just want your vote because I want to get to this place that's very, very different from Donald Trump. Okay, I want to say uh, two things here. One... Part of the way you argue what you say we should be kind of focusing on is you'll remember that Trump said that he would replace Obamacare with something terrific. (laughs) And when it turned out that something terrific, 23, 22, 23 million Americans would lose coverage. Right. And it would cost more for many of them. Right. And there wouldn't be guarantees of protection for people with pre-existing conditions. And on and on, that's why we had the election we had in 2018 where we picked up 40 seats in the House. Right. And there's no reason to believe, no matter what he says between now and the election, that he's going to do... He lies all the time. He doesn't know what he's talking about all the time. Remember when he said, who knew health care was complicated? Right. right. Well, here's the danger sign. I talked to somebody from the White House last week who said that Trump believes he can win on health care. And you know how he believes he can win on health care? It's just simply not to run on his record. And if he wanted to not run on his record, then the last Several debates were just music to his ears. Yes, we have to emphasize that he has been a disaster. Even with maintaining the ACA, because of stuff they've done, smaller enrollment period, less people helping you sign up, um, less payments to people who have high needs and low income. In the last two and a half years... Seven million Americans have lost insurance coverage under President Trump. And that's when he failed to get the policies he wanted through Congress. So imagine what will happen when he succeeds in getting those policies through, through Congress. And, and let me say one more thing before we 
go any further, and this may sound a little self-serving, and it is, I guess. There was one provision in the Affordable Care Act that checked, put a check on how much profit insurance companies could make. And that was called? That was called the uh, medical loss ratio. Okay. Who authored that? I don't want to say. You don't want to say? I think you could confirm this. I think it was Senator Al Franken. Yes. Yes. I recall. Now, it was. Now, what, uh, the medical loss ratio basically said that insurance companies, uh, small pool mm-hmm. insurance companies, had to spend at least 80% of the premiums because if the insurance company didn't meet the 80 or 85% medical loss ratio, in other words, didn't spend 85% of the large group on health care, but spent it on CEO salaries or marketing or administrative costs, if they didn't do that, you got a check back. So people got, and, and they've become more efficient now, actually, thanks to the MLR. These junk plans now that Trump's approved are back in the 40, 45, 50% zone. And you would think that if you were giving an insurance company a dollar, the least you could ask for would be, can you spend most of it <laughs> back on the medical expenses that we need? The thing that uh, is, would be interesting, and I think, were you there now, I think we would be talking about legislation like this. Why not increase the medical loss ratio 1% every year? Require that the insurance yeah, because now they be more efficient. Just, just required them to be more efficient and reduce costs every year. But uh, to, to take a step back and just take a look at what you said and the importance of what that did is, you know, we are suspicious of, of oil and gas companies polluting the environment. We're suspicious of automobile manufacturers making cars that don't that don't comply with with regulations. But what we don't do necessarily is say our only option is to get rid of all oil and gas companies and get rid of all automobile manufacturers. What we do say is. Let's pass regulations which require that these actors meet our standards or they're breaking the law and can't exist. And those work so well. well I mean, that, that's one of the problems well, is the oil and gas companies. I mean, it, it's, it, they have captured the Congress to an extent. And that's the argument that the Bernie people will make is that the insurance sure, companies it's a, have it's a fair. That's a, it's a fair argument. The point is that regulation – particularly of highly consolidated industries, is a tool that we don't use enough and that I think the medical loss ratio was one of the first and best examples where we said, fine, you're going to serve this market, you're going to play by a set of the rules, much like pre-existing conditions are. And so, you know, when we had a different uh, president and a different Congress, we said, hey, automobile manufacturers need to get certain miles per gallon in their vehicles. And as it turns out, everybody's better off when you do that and when you do that intelligently. And so there's no question that people's uh, animosity to the private sector is well-earned by the private sector and is real. And I'd also say 2018 was a first dent in the armor to say that voters and grassroots actually matters more at the end of the day than the money in politics. But there is still an overwhelming influence of money in politics and there's uh, no love lost between the American public and these companies. So I don't think it's actually that anybody on that stage is fearful of insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies or special interests. 
I, w- I wouldn't say that as a blanket statement, but I would say as a rule, I think those guys are losing power pretty rapidly. What I think they're scared of and why they would say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't rush into an, of getting rid of the option that people can buy employer-based coverage or some private sector coverage is because the reality is you've got 150 million people today who are employed to whom their employer pays 70% of their coverage. And they fear that if they take that away, that they're not going to see that money. Now, at the same time, the new jobs that are created today in the new economy, most of them don't come with health benefits. Most of the new jobs are um, very, very different today than they were when those jobs were put together. So we can't stand pat. Nobody wants us. You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is completely off topic, and I'll get through it right away. That Yang talked about AI. And, you know, five years, ten years from now, we're going to be, who's that guy talking about AI? Because, boy, was he right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to need truck drivers at a certain point or anywhere near as many. But we're going to need more therapists. We're going to have to start training people for, you know, other kinds of jobs. Yeah, the human side. Okay, so let's talk about how many candidates have a very specific plan for health care and how many have sort of just general parameters. I'd say that there are about four or five of them that have released their own unique plans with their own unique features. All of them, though, all of the people on both stages have declared one way or the other what they support when it comes to covering everybody. So it's really easy to know that they all want to cover everybody. But a few of them, Sanders, Harris, Michael Bennett, uh, Joe Biden, um, have released their own plans. I may be missing one or two. And then there's a few more that are going to release some and that are working on um, some of the unique plans. I think Buttigieg is working on one and it's basically going to be public option with... uh... What Pete Pete says is Medicare for all who want it. And that uh, is another way of saying public option. Public option. Right. Late nights at work taking a toll on your skin. Do you find yourself staring at those dark circles in the mirror? Well, it's time to meet your new best friend. Dark Circle Defense Balm from Lumen. Lumen is a line of brilliant men's skincare solutions crafted especially for men who want to look and feel their brightest. Whether you're a seasoned skincare pro or a total newbie, Lumen Skin has got you covered. Lumen's Dark Circle Defense Balm is a lightweight gel that absorbs seamlessly into your skin to brighten your under eyes and instantly plump dehydration lines. It's basically an espresso shot for your eyes. The best part? Lumen will let listeners of this podcast try the product out for free. Yes, you heard that right. Free. Head to lumenskin.com slash wondery and get your free trial of Dark Circle Defense and their other amazing products now. Say goodbye to tired-looking eyes and say hello to a new and refreshed you. Don't wait any longer. Your skin will thank you. That's lumenskin.com slash wondery for your free trial. Let's talk about Harris because that's, I guess, the most recent. And also, it has some features to it that I'd like to look at, uh, like a 10-year transition. Now, I think you've been saying all along that creating a single payer, and her thing isn't single payer. Hers is Medicare for all, either through a government Medicare program or a private sector Medicare provider. I see. Okay, right. Like people have now. Like people have now. 
but the ten-year window. You have been saying this is much more complicated to go from the healthcare system we have now to a single-payer system. You compared it more to city planning than just flipping a, a switch, right? That's right. What now? We're about ten years out from when the ECA was passed, and there was a five-year window before it was mostly implemented. Uh, I would t- tell you that it's 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 very very hard. It's not necessarily that we need five years or ten years, uh, but I think the idea of saying we're going to do certain things in stages uh, makes a certain amount of sense. What is what is important though is she begins many of the changes immediately. She doesn't wait ten years to make coverage available to everyone. She yeah, just give me a sense. Things. Just and I, I don't I don't think the listener has to think hard through each one of these, but the kind of choices you would have to make when you're setting up a single payer plan. What would sure. you, this is the city planning Got analogy. Got it. I'll give you four big decisions that you really need to make in, in any plan you choose. Um, and assuming in all these plans, you're going to cover everybody with as high quality care as possible for as low cost as possible. That's the aim. You got to make four decisions. The first is, how do you pay hospitals and doctors? And that's important because if you pay them what the Medicare program pays them today and they no longer are able to receive the payments that they get from commercial insurance companies, they would make a lot less. And that would have implications for the availability of care, for people going into medicine, for, for those sorts when of things. When we saw the Republican plan in uh, seventeen. They were going to essentially get rid of Medicaid expansion, which freaked out right. everybody in rural Minnesota. Right. In rural America. Absolutely. In rural America. Because when we did the ACA, we expanded Medicaid, and that meant for rural hospitals, they would get paid <laughs> when someone came in to the emergency room instead of someone that had no insurance, that would be uncompensated care. Right. And because of all the compensated care, they were able to get more doctors, get more nurses, get more technicians, get better machines, get better food, right. all of that. Right. And, so, and, and became the highest employer in the county that's in right. many cases. That's right. And in states that didn't expand Medicaid, it's been a disaster for rural hospitals. There's just a report that just came out on that. There's no question we have to control costs, but how we pay providers is important. And it's not just the level or the amount we pay providers. It's what do we pay them for? Is there an opportunity to pay them based upon the outcomes that they achieve, how, how good a job they do, keeping people healthy? There's a whole set of questions that are there under that, under that question. The second right. question that has to be answered is, what is the patient responsibility from a financial perspective? What should it be? Sanders would say... Uh, it should be zero, no copays, no deductibles, which obviously sounds attractive to people. You know, the Republican ideal is that they have a ten thousand dollar deductible, and then you give people a spending account for those that have enough money to to invest their money and and save. It's not my fault that they ate terribly and and drank all the time, and you know were lazy. Well, is it your fault that you're born with? A- Right. Health with a, a heart defect, right? You can't blame you can't blame kids at the very least, and that's and and these these are plans that are, that have that really discriminate in that direction. So, what is there in between where Sanders is and where this sort of Republican Nirvana is? Is there's a lot. For one, 
I believe that deductibles are really not necessary. Deductibles say if you get sick in January, it's going to cost you a lot more than if you get sick in December. And it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I don't get that. Why why is that? Because every year your plan starts over January 1st. Oh, right. You start with a deductible. And so the first is on you. But there, but there are sensible ways of saying that there should be some amount of responsibility borne by individuals based on their income. You know, there's a lot of studies out which say, you know, if, if as long as people are paying less at the end of the day, less than seven or eight percent of their income, if they make over say a hundred, hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars in medical expenses, that it's affordable. And so there's some affordability criteria for individuals, and, and you know, there are things that are. If you go to the emergency room, maybe when you should have gone to, when you could have gone to the urgent care clinic, maybe it should cost you a little bit more. There's a lot of different room to maneuver. And I'm not, I'm not advocating as much as I'm saying, what are the four types of decisions that it needs to get made? The second one is, how do you think about what amount that an individual or family has to pay? And I think all of the Democratic candidates would say it should be income graded and people with low and fixed incomes should pay nothing or very, very little. And then above that, um, there should be some uh, some some amount that that can be figured in. The third which question, Medicare does, which Medicare does. Yeah. The third question is, what should be the role of the employer in providing coverage? If they want to provide coverage, should they have to? Will they be allowed to? Right. Should they be forced to? Um, which is which is an employer mandate? Uh, should they enforce to above a certain size? How do you create equality between people who don't work? For a regular, you know, who don't work, people aren't a lot of people working for General Electric or Ford Motor anymore. How do you make sure that people who work for, for their own company or work on farms uh, or work multiple jobs or drive an Uber get treated exactly the same way as someone from a large employer? And right now, the tax system gives a big benefit to people who get their insurance through their employer. And if because the employer gets to deduct, the employer gets to deduct it. So we have we spent two hundred. When did this come? Did, did, was this World War Two, where the system kind yeah, of came? Yeah, there's all the origins in the railroads and World War Two, and Kaiser Permanente was kind of how the employer piece started. But this deduction you point to, it's really interesting. It's not a small amount of money we taxpayers spend. We spend two hundred fifty billion dollars a year on allowing employers to give tax-free insurance to their employees. And we don't spend it on people. We don't give the same tax break to everybody who gets insurance on their own. And so given that most jobs these days, my kids' jobs and uh, every, you know, all of our younger generations that are, that are growing up are, are not necessarily going to get access to that tax break, it really is a tax break for people who are fortunate enough to work for these large companies. We have to figure out how to address that fairly. And one person's version and Sanders' version, that means doing away with the employer system of insurance entirely. Uh, and some other people's system, that means gradually moving away from it. That's kind of where Harris is. And in some people's version, like Biden's, it means if an employer wants to, to, to do this and make it a benefit of working there, uh, and, and they do pay for a large part of your coverage, let's, let's let them do that. And, and another wrinkle that Ryan brought up. Unions. Unions. Unions trade off salary right. or pay for health care. Right. And so, it, look, and it's not as if these details don't matter to the public. They do matter to the public. But again, the, the, the end of the day, they're all different ways of accomplishing the same thing. And furthermore, to your point, the Senate and the House are not going to give the president exactly what their plan looks like. They're going to give them what they think makes sense. 
I told you there were four. And okay. without drawing it out, I'll give you the, the fourth decision is um, what should be the role of private insurance in the private sector? And this is not a yes or no answer because in some cases, in some countries, the insurance is used as a supplement. In some cases, it's used as a substitute. In some cases, it's used to provide things above basic level. In some cases, it's used as an alternative. In very few cases that I could think of, is there almost no role for the private sector, even in Canada and the United Kingdom, where you have um, a very prominent government system. There are a lot of people, if they want to, who get something from the private sector. And so... And uh, usually it's through their employer. Right. But there's a point here that, that, that Sanders makes and that others make that's important to address, which is about the inefficiency of having many, 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 many different health plans who all send their claim forms to their uh, doctors different ways and who all do things differently and they don't share data and they have higher administrative costs. How do you make healthcare system more efficient? How do you deal with unnecessary users, profits, and so forth? And again, the answer could be anything from do away with them entirely to regulate the hell out of them, which is, I think, along the lines of the medical loss ratio we talked about earlier, Al, or... Uh, or, or, or something else. But that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Well, you know, when you uh, run last time, when you did this last time, you talked a, a lot about physicians burning out. And I, I, you have to think that these insurance forms are part of that, right? Right. Now, there's two things, though. Remember, uh, if you think about how a physician would do under Medicare for All plan, if they were all reimbursed only at the Medicare rate, they would be getting paid a lot less money. Now, to compensate for that, at least somewhat, uh, it might be easier, and they would certainly make their job more satisfying uh, if they didn't have to deal with all the insurance, insurance forms and regulations. But there's also an income effect as well that we can't forget. Right. Yeah, because you think of doctors, a lot of doctors making a lot of money. And this would, if the government ran this, you'd become a doctor for a different reason, I would think. Yeah. Well, I think we should think about doctors in a few different categories. Uh, you know, there's primary care doctors and mental health professionals and people in that nature whose jobs it is to keep people healthy. And they don't get paid nearly enough as it is, most of them. And there's not nearly enough of them. And there's not nearly enough right. of them in the places that need them. And so... You wouldn't do anything if, in good policy to discourage primary care doctors, family medicine, physicians. In fact, OBs, we, we've been trying to find ways of like paying off loans and all That's that right. kind of stuff to That's encourage right. people to do that because we do have a shortage. That's right. Now, there, there, are, there are specialists that make a lot of money. Uh, there, there are many, many other types of institutions from hospitals to nursing homes to, you know, to rehab facilities and, and everybody else. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are very, very inefficient. Some of them are left, however, the only game in town in the small town that they're in, and they're just getting by, hanging by a thread. So this is a very diverse country with a lot of different situations. The city planning analogy may not be perfect, but it's important that we get these details right. We get the payments of providers right. We figure out how to do this in a way that encourages the kinds of physicians and healthcare professionals that we want. 
that rewards people who are taking care of people and keeping them healthy, that we don't do anything um, that causes people to lose access to care because we stop um, hospitals in, in, whether it's inner cities or in rural communities, from being able to get by. And we have to start to ask those questions at the detailed level of these plans. And in many respects, those are the details that are probably too much for a primary. But it brings me back again to, to the overall point that there are a lot of details to work out. Let's make sure as Democratic candidates, you don't lose sight of the fact that you don't get to deal with those details if the current president wins again. If the current president wins again, you have a situation that will look a lot like everybody's worst fears, in my opinion. Well, I think that's a great summary of uh, where we are now, or at least our viewpoint of it. I would like to see in the debates going forward, I still think each candidate is entitled to talk about what she or or he wants to talk about, of course, of course, and uh, to try to win. But we also need to remind people what the contrast is. And the contrast, this is a good contrast. This is this is where you're running against someone who is very underwater in terms of the American public and for very, very, very good reason. That's right. Look, the battleground states as we know them today, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, um, Minnesota, Florida. Florida, you know, these are places where the president's health care record is extremely unpopular. Um, in fact, a generic Democrat on health care, even in areas that are favorable to Trump generally, in those battleground states, Democrats are nine points more favorable than Trump on health care. And running on health, that health care record, reminding people of what the last two and a half years have been like, while Trump will say, pretty much in the debates, we can assume he'll say whatever he wants. But at least people will be fact-checking him, and that'll make a big difference. They'll be fact-checking him, but is he if he if he characterizes um, the you know what what he thinks healthcare the healthcare debate is about? The Democrats need to be very clear, in my view, and very strong in their view, to say that the general election is about Trump's record versus what what they're for, which I think will not be this debate about those intricate four questions about how people are getting paid and whether or not an employer can or can't offer coverage. Those questions will be not the right questions to focus on uh, if they indeed want to win and, in fact, if they indeed you know, want to govern successfully. So I think we both agree that that these are fine distinctions to make as long as they keep it in check and keep some oxygen for the fact that the country is rapidly and scare and in a very scary way, taking health care coverage away from millions of people. And again, this is just our opinion. You were head of Medicare and Medicaid for the Obama administration for the last part of that and saved, let's face it, um, the ACA and the, the Obama presidency. Well, that I don't know if I saved the presidency, but I do think that it's given me an opportunity to voice my opinion publicly, and I would say um, that, like you, I am very much looking forward to voting for the candidate 
Um, I will vote for anyone of them. Everyone. Anyone. Anyone. I I, I think I might have made news there. Hmm. Anyway, I'd vote for any of them. Okay. There there you have it. Uh, Thank you, uh, return guests, for the first time. Thanks for having me back. You bet. Thanks for putting this out. Okay. uh, Keep listening, everybody. Uh, This is uh, Al Franken. This is the Al Franken Podcast. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken Podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.